John chapter 20. I'll be reading verses 24 through 29, continuing in this brief series looking at Christ convincing the skeptic. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within. And Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. Here, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. We're continuing in this brief series dealing with the subject of Christ convinces the skeptic, doubting Thomas. We said that we'll be looking at three things in this series, the problem of Thomas, the persuading of Thomas, and the profession of Thomas. Now we started on this with our first message, looking at the sadness of unbelief. And we considered four things in regard to the sadness of unbelief, being Thomas missed out on the peace of God, the proof of God, the pleasure of God, and the purpose of God. Today we're continuing now, looking here at verse 25 as we begin to consider the stubbornness of his unbelief. Again, verse 25 says, The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hand the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. We see here the stubbornness of Thomas's unbelief as being emphasized by this statement, I will not believe. He was being very dogmatic in that statement. He made it clear that he wasn't going to take the word of his fellow disciples, but demanded a more tangible proof uh, had to be provided him. You know, unbelief often criticizes faith for being dogmatic. The other ten disciples saw the Lord. They were sharing with him their joy, their pleasure, the thrill of heart to know that Christ had risen from the dead. And they were telling him about their experience of Jesus presenting himself to them in the upper room. But unbelief says, I will not take your word. I will not accept your testimony. I will not listen to what you have to say. You know, again, unbelief is very critical of believers for being dogmatic. But the fact of the matter is, as Bible-believing Christians, we are wholly convinced the Bible is the Word of God and everything contained therein is true and we have the right to be dogmatic about our faith. You see, we believe... Every miracle recorded in Scripture occurred as was stated. We believe every person and location mentioned in the Bible existed. We believe that every command issued is to be obeyed, and every promise given will be fulfilled. We reject all claims that the Bible is errant, 
irrelevant, unreliable, or fictional. We absolutely are dogmatic as to a number of our beliefs. You see, we believe Adam's sin nature is inherited by all mankind. We believe man's inability to change his eternal destiny of his own accord. We believe God's plan of salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, plus nothing and minus nothing. We believe Jesus Christ was incarnate in human flesh. We believe in the virgin birth, his sinless life, his literal death, burial, and resurrection. We believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ on Calvary's cross. We believe in his ascension into heaven and that he is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us today. We believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of every believer. We believe in the importance of of the command to the local church. We believe in his plan for the ages and we believe in our future home being heaven. We are convinced that the Bible is the answer to every problem. We believe God can meet every need and we believe Jesus Christ is the only hope for this world. Yes, we are dogmatic. We are convinced there is but one way to have sins forgiven, and that is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. We believe in one God, one heaven, one hope for mankind. But it's because of these beliefs that we are labeled as being narrow-minded, old-fashioned, out of touch with reality, hate-mongers, and extremists. You see, a bibliocentric worldview is deemed by many as a threat to the betterment of mankind and the stability of a universal culture and society. What they are saying is, we are a danger to society because we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And we are unwilling to accept other statements of authority as a substitute for the Word of God. Yes, we are independent, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptists, and we are vilified for our unwavering stance on the principles of the Word of God. But you understand, that is what we are instructed to do in Scripture, is to stand firmly on God's Word. Jude, verse 3 says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints to earnestly contend to actively stand up and declare thus saith the Lord and not allow anyone to push us back in a corner and force us or coerce us into saying we don't believe it we don't go along with it no we are to stand on the word of God and make sure others know that it is the truth by which we follow and we pattern our lives. 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul wrote, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and in love which is in Christ Jesus. You know, unbelief can throw stones all at once. And see, there are many who criticize Christians for being dogmatic in their belief and unwavering in their faith. But unbelief can be equally dogmatic and be just as vocal in the opposite direction as we are for Christ. How is it that no one rebukes the intelligentsia's elite for their dogmatic stance 
on their positions of atheism or anti-God beliefs. Men like Carl Sagan, Stephen Hawking, Neil deGrasse Tyson, they're viewed as the elite in the world of science. And because they are so accomplished and so intelligent and so well-received, we have to accept what they say as true and disagree with all who would stand against them. Just because somebody is above average in the area of their intelligence doesn't guarantee they're right. These men may very well be geniuses, humanly speaking, and compared to others. I mean, they could stand well above every one of us in regard to their IQ. However, when compared to God, their level of intelligence is minuscule. And so many times we're using the wrong yardstick to measure someone's accomplishments, intelligence, skills, or abilities. The Bible tells us when we compare ourselves among ourselves, we are not wise. If we want to do some comparing, compare yourself to the Lord. People need to compare themselves to God. Here we see that Thomas followed the path of those who are unbelievers, and he said, I will not believe. His stubbornness was very evident. And by the way, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, states stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. The world's stubbornness to God's truths reveals their self-trust, the malady of all who reject the authority and veracity of the word of God. This unbelief of Thomas was willful. Remember, he said, I will not believe. His unbelief wasn't an intellectual problem. It was a heart problem. He had been presented with facts, but he said, I refuse to accept them. He had been told by these other disciples what happened. But he said, I, I, no, I will not accept that. His unbelief was similar to that of the two disciples whom Jesus met with and walked with on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, verse 25 says, O fools, this is Jesus speaking to them, saying, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Notice he said, though, slow of heart to believe. Thomas had a heart problem. It wasn't the fact that he lacked knowledge. No, he had the facts. He just wasn't willing to accept them because he chose not to believe. You see, the source of unbelief is the heart, not the head. With our intellect, we develop the arguments to support our unbelief. A stubborn heart has to be overcome by the working of the Holy Spirit of God. It's a mistake to attempt to make the gospel appeal to the intellect so that we can convince the intellectual crowd of our faith. The answer isn't a magnetic personality, skillful speech, convincing arguments, or a sincere approach. The answer is the Spirit of God. And we, when we speak with folks, need to make sure... We are filled with the Spirit of God and in turn are led of the Lord in trying to convince these people of Christ. Again, it is the Holy Spirit that has to do the convincing. It's not our duty to win the debate with unbelievers in attempt to bring a halt to the discrediting of our faith by their unbelief. Now, fighting unbelief in this matter emphasizes the intellect rather than the heart's spiritual need. 
If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and uh, we'll come back to our text in a moment. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, call attention to this very fact. Notice how Paul approached the Corinthian believers. As he's writing back to them, he's rehearsing his visit with them. And this is how he he addresses the matter of his approaching them and attempting to reach them. Verse 1, he writes, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Later in chapter 4, verse 20, he writes, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Again, Unbelief is a problem with the heart. And we need to reach people with the truth of the gospel and let God speak to their hearts and change them and break that pattern of unbelief in their lives and that they might be converted. It's not the lack of intellectual evidence or convincing arguments that keeps people in unbelief. No, it is the willful, rebellious heart that does so. There's several reasons people don't embrace the truth. Number one, they do not know the facts and cannot believe them. Number two, they do not understand the facts and are not able to comprehend them. Or number three, they do not believe the facts and refuse to acknowledge them. The intellectual approach misses the mark. Paul, when he stood before Agrippa, shared with him his testimony and told him of his conversion experience on the Damascus Road. And by the way, that's a good place for us to start when we talk to lost folks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell them what he did for you. Tell him about how you got saved, how you saw yourself a lost sinner on your way to hell and received Christ as Savior. Paul did exactly that. And notice Agrippa's response in chapter 26, verse 28, the book of Acts. Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. It was an unbelieving heart that prevented Agrippa from accepting this great truth. And the tragedy is there's no indication anywhere in Scripture or in history that following this occasion where he met with Paul, that he came to know Christ as Savior. How sad for people to be presented with the truth of the Word of God, a gospel invitation being given to them, and they reject it by saying, I will not believe. The Holy Spirit works best when the Word of God is being proclaimed, for it is the Word of God that penetrates the heart of its listeners. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is quick, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. Beloved, too much emphasis being placed today on the intellect, and too little on the heart. How we need to pray that God would use us, use our testimony, our witness, to reach the hearts of those 
whom we come into contact with. Here we see Thomas's unbelief and the stubbornness of that unbelief and how it impacted him. But notice back in our text in John 20, verse 25, we see also unbelief's stipulation. 2025, where he said, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. This passage of scripture is the only place in the New Testament that speaks of nails piercing the Savior's hands and feet. And here Thomas chooses to use this situation to dictate the terms by which he would believe the resurrection. His demand reflects pride and arrogance. In spite of the fact that God had already provided evidence to the disciples, Thomas wanted more. That's kind of the way the world looks at things today in regard to our Lord and Scripture. You see, unbelief puts the emphasis on physical senses. Thomas put it on sight and feeling here. But faith has a different emphasis as recorded in Hebrews, which we have already looked at in the earlier series. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith accepts what God offers us. Unbelief says, I want more. According to the word of God, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You know, if we can't accept what God provides for us in his word, there's really nothing else. And the sad note today is many reject God's word and are looking for another source of authority. They're looking for another avenue by which we might gain entrance into heaven. They're looking for another God whom they might follow and serve. But beloved, the answer for the world today is in this book. And they need to hear what is written therein. You see, unbelief prefers sight to the Word of God because the Word of God is not enough. Just as Thomas said, it's not enough. I have to see his hands and his feet. Luke chapter 16, verse 29. Abraham, this of course is dealing with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man having gone to hell. Lazarus having gone to Abraham's bosom. The rich man realizes his dire straits. And he wants somebody to go and take a message to his brothers. Notice what the Lord says in this story. Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. What he's saying is if they won't accept God's word, they're not going to believe anything else. See, the problem for a lot of folks is they find God's word insufficient to satisfy the need of their hungry heart. But this book is able to meet the need of everyone who would come unto Christ. The problem in this situation is Thomas said, I'll believe, but it's going to be on my terms. Are you interested in what God's terms are? Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, he said, come, let us reason together. That's an interesting statement because God is saying, okay, let's talk about this. And then he goes ahead and hits his listeners right between the eyes. He said, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
He didn't enter into a dialogue with him saying, well, let's talk about it. Maybe things aren't as bad as I've I've portrayed. Maybe you're not as sinful a person as I have already stated. No, God's not interested in vacillating on his position concerning lost mankind. God said sin is sin. And he said, your sin is scarlet and it shall be as white as snow. Red like crimson, it shall be as wool. We have here, of course, the picture of salvation in knowing that when someone is washed in the blood of the Lamb, they appear before the Lord as those robed in righteousness or robed in white. What a blessing to know that God already has the plan laid out. And just because some pipsqueak comes along and said, I'll believe, but it's going to be my way. It's going to be on my terms. It's going to be according to my expectations. God said, no, this is the way. Walk ye in it. To illustrate this, let me share with you something I came across here recently. This is an article from GQ magazine dated April 19th of this year. So this article is only a month old. But it reveals a great deal about what the world thinks of God and how they view his word. This is a quote. We've been told all our lives that we can only call ourselves well-read once we've read the great books. We tried. We got halfway through Infinite Jest and halfway through the spark notes on Finnegan's Wake. But a few pages into Bleak House, we realized that not all the great books have aged well. Some are racist and some are sexist, but most are just really, really boring. So we, at a group of unboring writers, give you permission to strike these books from your canon. And they give a list of 21 books that really nobody should bother reading anymore. Books such as The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Catch-22, Gulliver's Travels, A Farewell to Arms. And of course, they offer a, a suitable suggestion in their eyes. But what caught my attention was number 12 on the list is the Bible. This is what they write about it. The Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. Those who have read it know there are some good parts, but overall, it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times, ill-intentioned. There's so many things wrong with that statement. I don't know where to begin. If one truth could be attributed to it, it is a sad fact that many who claim to love and obey the Word of God don't read it. I think that is a a semi-accurate statement that they've made there. They say that uh, it's not the finest thing that man ever produced. Well, they're right about that. Man didn't have anything to do with this other than God using man to pen the words. This is God's book. It is God's word. It is absolutely true from cover to cover. These self-appointed, I want to be kind here, these self-appointed morons have set themselves above God and by their own will, their refusal to accept God's word as being true, they have said, let's substitute what God says for what someone else says. 
And they did suggest another book in its place, and I don't even remember what it was. But what's bizarre is, not actually, what's sad is that that is the attitude of many in the world today. You don't need this book. You don't have to read it. You certainly don't need to believe it. You don't have to follow it or obey it. Just go ahead and find something else. This is the mindset of the world that says, I'm going to get to heaven, but I'm going to do so my way. A common phrase these days is, I'm spiritual, but I'm not very religious. What they mean is, I have a spirit of godliness about me, but it's based on my own definition. It's based on my own understanding of what godliness is. It goes back to the idea of situation ethics, where people say, well, the situation that I'm in determines what is right and what is wrong. No, the word of God determines what is right and what is wrong. There is a difference between unrighteousness and righteousness. And unfortunately, many people think that they can squish God into a little box or a bottle or a jar and say, I'm going to go ahead and follow God based on what I think of him, how I define him, and how I expect him to interact with me. How crazy for people today to follow in the footsteps of this disciple, and by the way, a disciple of the Lord who said, I will not believe unless God meets my demands and shows me exactly what I want to see. There's a lot of folks today who take that attitude How sad to say that many professing Christians fall into the same trap and expect God to jump when they say jump and expect God to do what they demand him to do. God is sovereign. God is holy. And he will always do that which is just and right and good. What's amazing is when we continue in this series, we're going to see that even though he didn't have to, our Lord presented himself to Thomas to demonstrate he truly was the resurrected Christ. And then he rebuked him greatly for his unbelief. Bad news is for those alive today, just because they demand the same thing that this man did nearly 2,000 years ago, Christ isn't going to come on the scene He's not going to appear to them physically or in a vision and hold out his hands and say, there you go. You can put your fingers in the nail print. He's not going to reveal his side and say, thrust your hand into my side. No, God has given us his word. And like Jesus' story, Abraham's statement to the rich man saying, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets... They're not going to believe if somebody raises from the dead. How tragic for many today. They're looking for a sign. They're looking for a vision. They're looking for some sort of guarantee or assurance apart from the word of God that Jesus is who he said he is and he will do what he said he will do. For them, they are without hope. For it is God's word that reveals the truth. And we believe, as we said, the answer to every one of life's problems is right here in the pages of this book. God's holy word.
how said that people reject, will reject what this says and follow it rather the teachings, the instructions of man and they're going to be led headlong into a Christless eternity. How tragic it is. We as God's children need to be faithful to live for God, love Him and serve Him that we not get caught up in the trap of unbelief. The sadness of Thomas's unbelief was that he missed out on the blessings that the other disciples enjoyed. The stubbornness of his unbelief was his own hard-heartedness in saying, I will not believe. The stipulation of his unbelief said, God's going to have to meet me on my terms. He's going to have to come to me. No, Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His invitation is available to anyone who will come. For the Spirit and the Bride say come. The last invitation in the Word of God, Jesus Christ and His message of salvation is available to all who will believe. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. All the message that needs to be preached to the world today is trust Christ. Believe him. Receive him as your Savior. But so many follow in the footsteps of this man, Thomas who said, I will not believe, except. It is that word, except, that is going to be on the minds of many throughout eternity. Because they said, I will not believe, except Jesus meets me on my terms. How tragic. Let's us, as God's children, be faithful in our witness, in our walk, in our worship that we in turn might reach as many with the truth of the gospel while they still have time to turn to him.